coming Saturday is our next uh, Go and Do event. It's called BCOC Cares. Uh, we're going to be meeting here at the building at 8.30 in the morning. There will be some donuts provided for, for some coffee and donuts provided for you. And then we're going to leave here and we'll be going to uh, the city center of Sugar Hill. Uh, we've got a couple of projects lined up there with the, with the city of Sugar Hill that we'll be doing. Uh, one of those will be taking place at the uh, um, cemetery there across the street from City Hall where we'll be spreading dirt and gravel and, and cleaning some headstones all as an effort to prepare for their, the Memorial Day activities that will be going on and for the people who will be coming to honor um, vets and, and such like that. So we've got that. We'll also be picking up trash around the city center and on Highway 20. So uh, please make plans to come join us for this uh, activity. It's a great opportunity for us to partner with our community and, and uh, to, to show that, that we care. So um, please come out. Again, that starts at 8.30. Coffee and donuts here in the upper room. We'll leave from here and head over to uh, Sugar Hill Town Center area and then be having lunch out there as well, lunch provided out there. So uh, please make plans to be a part of that. You can register for it on the website, and that helps, um, that helps George and Ben uh, know who to expect, and you can say what equipment you can bring. Um, you can be like Jay Hall, who said he's just going to bring his big guns, and you can let us know how you can contribute um, and what you can provide for this project. So please be sure to register online if you haven't already. Also, we want to let you know that Camp Inagehi registration is open. And if your child is between the ages of 9 and 18, you can register them at campinagehi.org. We really want to uh, let people know that if your child is, is 9 years old, they're old enough to go to camp now. And it's been, you know, we didn't have camp last year, so there's a group that, that, that's old enough to go that's never been. So be thinking about that. The, our week of camp that is... Uh, led by Tom Algieri, is June 27th through July 2nd. The cost is $175 up until May 31st. If you wait till after May 31st, the cost goes up to $190, so you get a, a little bit of a discount, an early bird discount, so be uh, aware of that if your children are considering going to camp this summer. Uh, some of you have already pointed out to me that on our uh, Watch Live page, there's nowhere for you to indicate that you are with us in person tonight. Well, that's because we are actually, and have been for some time, tracking in-person attendance on Wednesday nights uh, in person. We have somebody who is filling out the Attend app uh, that's connected with our Servant Keeper uh, software. And so your attendance is being tracked in person. If you are in person, it's unnecessary for you to go online and tell us you're here. But if you're worshiping with us online, we still want you to go to the Watch Live page and indicate that you're with us tonight. Please do that if you're with us online. Um, so I know that's confusing, but we're trying to, to resume some normalcy in different ways, and this is one of those ways. Uh, one prayer request that we want to mention tonight is actually for my daughter Leah. Um, she was she had to go get some x-rays done today because they, the doctors are concerned she might have some hip dysplasia or something like that. Uh, we haven't gotten any results yet. We've gotten the x-rays taken care of, but please keep her in your prayers that, that whatever may be the issue uh, will be easily resolved. Uh, so please keep Leah in your prayers. Uh, with that, I'm going to ask Andrew Newman to come up and lead us in a word of prayer. with me. Father, thank you so much for this day that you've given us to wake up and to enjoy the life that we're able to. 
the life foremost of knowing your son and having the salvation that is in him and the grace that you've given to us. Lord, we're so immensely grateful for that, that no matter what happens in this life, that we truly have that grace and that salvation. Father, we just pray that, that as we continue to return to more normal times, that we will always remember that fact, that we will remember the lessons through the pandemic that we've had uh, that have you know, been uh, affected, uh, affected us and just caused us to, to think about our relationship with you and our relationship with others. And we just pray that that would be strengthened, that we would not soon forget those feelings and emotions of not being able to be together and just the stimulation that has come through the, the trial that we faced. We pray that you be with all of those that are still enduring that, uh, those that are still suffering from COVID, those that are still suffering from just the effects of the last, at this point, couple of years. And we just are mindful of all, Lord, that are seeking you across this world. We know that We've endured this pretty well compared to some other places, uh, even right now. And we just pray that you would continue to put your hand in all of those situations and that you would continue to uh, do your marvelous work across the world. Lord, be with those that are the worshiping and that are gathering together in various ways and places tonight. Uh, we just are thankful that we can gather here at the building and virtually. Um, we pray, Father, that we would encourage each other regardless of how we're gathering and that we would remember that you are in control and, and, and be stimulated by the studies that we can partake in. Father, be with Kyle tonight as he continues his class. Uh, thank you for the diligence that he's put into formulating uh, the message that, that he's been presenting uh, the last number of weeks. Thank you for the relevancy of that uh, topic, and we're just, again, grateful for him and, and his work. We do pray for his daughter, Leah, uh, as she's getting the x-rays uh, completed and then and then back to the Rye family. And we just ask that you would be with all the situations that are like that, um, just uh, in, in every instance. Father, thank you for just blessing us so much with, again, your love, but also with the many things that we can enjoy and that we have. Uh, just, Father, it's in times that we are without things that we sometimes remember how many things we have. And I pray that just we all are grateful for, for what we have and, and the time that we have uh, with our families and to be together. Father, continue to be with us in this week. Help us to embody your Son in our daily walks and the various interactions we have with people. And we just pray that that we would, in our, our time by ourselves too, also maintain the character that you've called us to, to, to have and possess. Father, we just love you again so much. We love each other, and we pray that we can glean insight from tonight's lesson and the continued lessons you teach us every day. Be with uh, all of the things that are going on right now, and may we continue to, uh, in our success and in our struggle, remember that you are with us and that you love us. May all the glory of our lives go to you, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Let me offer one final clarification about attendance tracking. When you come to worship on Sunday morning or Sunday evening, you will still need to go to the Watch Live page and indicate that, that you are here and that you are participating. This is only uh, new for Wednesday night Bible class right now. So it, it might be applied to Sunday morning Bible class as well, uh, but 
please don't forget at Sunday morning worship, Sunday evening worship, that you'll go online and indicate that you are with us, whether you're in person or online. Um, and if you have any questions about that, don't hesitate to ask me or, um, uh, or Pam. Uh, we'll, we'll definitely help you with that. We've only got three Wednesdays left in this quarter, counting tonight. And so we're going to be wrapping up our study of how we got the Bible over these three weeks. Oops, I forgot I don't have back projection. We're going to be wrapping up our study tonight, next week, and the following week. Uh, after this series concludes, we'll be entering our summer quarter, and we'll be engaging in what we call our summer series. We have a poster out here in the lobby. Uh, our summer series this year is going to be a study of bearing fruit. Uh, of course, that will include a study of the fruits of the Spirit, but it will include a study of, of some passages that talk about fruit bearing outside of the fruits of the Spirit. And I'm excited about the, the lineup of speakers we have coming, and I hope you'll make plans to be with us for our summer series on Wednesday nights this summer as much as possible. Uh, if you want to check out the list of speakers and topics, they are out here in the lobby, and I'm sure they'll be posted on the website and in the bulletin in uh, weeks to come. So please make plans to be a part of that. Tonight and next week and the week after that as we conclude this series, this study on how we got the Bible, we'll be concluding our examination of the collection, how God's Word was collected and canonized into its current form. Now, of course, our focus this whole quarter has been on the New Testament. If time permits in these next three weeks, I'll do a quick review of how all of this information impacts the Old Testament, but my goal has been to emphasize the new. We will also address translation. We'll address how God's Word was translated from the original languages into English. We'll do some comparison of the various uh, English translations or the major various English translations that we have available to us. Tonight, we are still focused on this category of collection of the uh, New Testament canon. And as we mentioned last or two weeks ago, and I must again give my thanks to Brother Gene Clover for filling in for me last week. I appreciate him doing that. Um, two weeks ago, we looked at the term canon. The English term canon is a transliteration of the Greek word for a reed or a cane. And the reason that word came to be adopted in reference to God's word is that a, the, the term canon from Greek came to mean something that was used as a standard or a rule. It measured things. And so it became a word that meant that by which something is judged to be inspired or authoritative. That's where our word canon derived from. And we've been looking two weeks ago and tonight at, at factors that contributed to the development of the New Testament canon. In particular, you may recall that we looked at the first century preparation. We looked at how Scripture spoke about canon, in a sense. You may re remember this graph, how it um, depicts uh, the, the timing of when each letter of the New Testament was likely written. And you can see from the left side of the screen, we have around 30 A.D., which is by that point the church was instituted. And then towards the end of the screen, you have AD 90, which uh, is the furthest end of the first century when the last books of the New Testament would have likely been written. And in that time frame, you have this writing of all 27 books of the New Testament. So in the first century, the first century is when, when the New Testament is being written. And in the midst of all this, we have uh, the steps toward canonization occurring occurring particularly uh, as the New Testament provides instructions regarding um, authentication. 
such as in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 2, where we're told to not, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to, to the effect that it, the day of the Lord has come. In other words, you have these passages that say, hey, you need to authenticate every word that comes to you, whether it's spoken by a preacher or written by an author. You need to authenticate what comes to you. And so there are instructions in the New Testament calling on authentication. There are instructions in the New Testament calling on uh, communication. And, and what we're referring to here is the fact that uh, these texts that are received by the churches in the first century are to be read to the whole congregation. You have 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and verse 27, where Paul said, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. Similar instructions are given in 1 Timothy 4, 13, Colossians chapter 4, verse 16, and even Revelation chapter 1 and verse 3. And finally, you can look at the New Testament, and it contains instructions not just about authenticating the, the letters that are sent to them, and not just communicating the content of those letters to the congregation, but there's also instructions in the New Testament regarding circulating those letters. So in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 16, Paul instructs the church in Colossae that when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you read the letter from Laodicea. Uh, Revelation indicates that the, that the contents of that book were circulated through all seven churches to whom it was written. And all of them received the, the, the message to every congregation. And so here throughout the first century, you have the church being instructed to authenticate the, the, the written communications that come to them. They're being told to communicate the written texts that come into their possession, and they're told to circulate those letters. So that's the steps towards um, the steps that are preparing for a New Testament canon. From there... And one second, my computer froze. From there, we get past first century preparation and we enter into um, early second century references to uh, inspired text. We call this references by apostolic fathers because the generation that uh, succeeded the apostles then begins to quote the New Testament. So you have these guys, that I, some of whom are pictured on the screen, guys like Papias, guys like Polycarp, Ignatius, Clement of Rome. These guys are writing letters, and they're quoting from New Testament books. And let me move on to this slide. And one of the interesting things is they quote from every book collectively, not individually, but collectively. And here's, here's a listing of just the Gospels and Acts, and you can see that from, uh, from guys who, or, or works, because Pseudo-Barnabas is just a, a, a letter, not a person, from the time of the late first century through the third century, you have all the Gospels and Acts being referenced, being quoted by these guys. You can see the same with Paul's letters, Romans through Philemon, all of them are being referenced or quoted by these early authors and communicators. And then the same with the general epistles, Hebrews through, through Revelation. You have all of them, some fewer than others, but getting referenced and quoted in some fashion. So by the end of 
or excuse me, by the middle of the third century, you have all of these New Testament texts that we possess referenced in some fashion. And that becomes the next step in the canonization process. After that, we enter into a, a phase of heretical movements that inspire the, the canon. In the second century in particular, you have these two guys who come on the scene and they influence the need for a canon. The first guy that enters the scene is a guy named, oh, hold on, is a guy named Marcion. And the issue with Marcion is that he decided to develop his own canon. He did not like any connections between Christianity and Judaism, so he wanted to eliminate anything that put Judaism or the Israelites in a good light from the New Testament. So he narrowed down his Gospels to one, the Gospel of Luke, which is written to a more Gentile audience than the others. And he, he only allowed certain of Paul's epistles, and he eliminated anything that appealed to the uh, the, the Jewish heritage of Christianity. And he made a very whittled down uh, canon. And it made the church realize, wait a second, there are books that he's eliminating that we know are authoritative and inspired and belong in the Bible. And so when, when Marcion enters the scene, he influenced the development of the canon because the church found it necessary to defend the literature that he excluded. Then comes along a guy named Montanus, and Montanus, well, Montanus decided he wanted to prophesy. And he decided that he was the promised Holy Spirit from John chapter 14 through 16, that he was the fulfillment of the uh, counselor that was to come, and he would prophesy and provide new information for the church. And suddenly the church realizes, wait a second, we might need to add more than Marcion allowed, but we don't need to add everything. And so Montanus influenced the development of the canon because the church found it necessary to prevent new literature written after the apostolic age. They came to realize there had to be a closed canon, that there is a point in time when the Holy Spirit is no longer inspiring the works of men. And so there came a need to open the canon and close the canon. And that was felt during the second century. So those are the influences for the first two centuries on the development of the canon. But now we enter into the fourth step of this development, and that is the publication of canonical lists. At some point, the church starts saying, okay, we need to make an authoritative list of what's accepted and what's not. And that starts to happen by the end of the second century. Before we start looking at specific lists, though, I, I do want to talk about how, uh, or how these lists were broken down, how they uh, were categorized, if you will. So bear with me one second as I get caught up with some notes here, uh, working three different technologies here. So following the, her the heretical movements that we just mentioned, Canonical lists began to be produced by Christians prior to the end of the second century. And these lists collectively identified four different classifications for the texts that would be mentioned in them. There was first the, hopefully I'll pronounce this one right, homologomina. 
And this, we'll talk about it more in just a second, but this is categorically texts that are accepted by everyone. Books that are accepted as canon by everybody. The second category is antilogomena, which is texts disputed by some. In other words, these are books, letters, documents that some people, not everyone, but some aren't so sure about when it comes to the canon. Third, you have the apocrypha. Apocrypha, that might be a term you're a little more familiar with. This would categorically be texts that are accepted by some. The majority aren't, aren't okay with these texts. Only a minority think these texts belong in the canon. And then finally, there's the pseudepigrapha, another term you might be familiar with. That refers to the texts that are rejected by everyone. These are just outright forgeries. They don't belong. They shouldn't even be talked about. These everyone rejects. So those are the four categories of the text that we will be talking about in just a moment. I want to expand on these categories a little bit more. Let's start with the first category, the homologomena. Um, this is the group that where texts are accepted by everyone. This term literally means one word, and it refers to the fact that all the church fathers spoke in favor of these texts, in favor of their canonicity. In other words, the canonicity of these texts was accepted by the church from the very beginning, and they were never disputed. These books have always been considered a part of the canon. Twenty of the 27 books of the New Testament are numbered in this group. I know that sounds disappointing. You want to hear all 27 are in this group? Uh, but we'll be explaining why some of them were not in just a moment. But 20 of the 27 books of the New Testament are part of this group that have always been accepted. Those include the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts, the 13 Pauline letters, 1 Peter and 1 John. Now, actually, 1 Peter and 1 John are sometimes lacking in recognition by some early authors and some canonical lists, but it's not that they are ever identified as um, books that shouldn't be included. Sometimes they're just not mentioned, as if the, uh, the author of that particular work or, the, or that particular list wasn't familiar with them yet. So they were never rejected. They just were for lack of a better term, omitted early on by some authors. So right off the bat, the vast majority of our New Testament has never been questioned. Now that leads us to our second classification of the text, which we are calling the antilogomena. These are texts that are disputed by some. That word dispute sounds more painful or more difficult than it really is. It just means that some people question the, uh, the canon, canonicity of certain books of the Bible. And there's six, I believe. Nope. Let me get back over here. There were um, one, two, three, four, five, six. There were seven. My math was off. Um, but that word, antilegomena, it means spoken against. The texts that are categorized with this group are those that did not receive universal recognition by the beginning of the 4th century. In other words, the canonicity of these texts was disputed or questioned by some for one reason or another. The books that fall in this category are Hebrews, James, 
2 Peter, 2 John, 3 John, Jude, and Revelation. And I'm going to take a moment to explain why that happened to each of these books. Now, what you need to understand about canonicity is that part of the process of, of attaching canonicity to a text was knowing a few things about it. Number one, you don't just assume something belongs in the canon if you don't know who the author was. You need some evidence of the authorship of that text to be able to determine whether or not it belongs in the canon. And it has to be authored by somebody who has apostolic connection or has unique connection to Jesus. So think about the authors of the New Testament. There really aren't that many. Among the authors of the New Testament, you have Matthew, you have John, you have Peter and Paul, who are all identified as apostles. So all of their texts have apostolic connection. In addition to those guys, you have Mark and Luke. Neither one of them are apostles. But what we do know historically about their, their, their Gospels is that Mark wrote the memoirs of Peter, apostolic connection. And Luke wrote as someone who was an acquaintance of Paul, another apostolic connection. So Mark, Luke, Peter, Paul, Matthew, John, we get all those. What about James? And what about Jude? Well, they're not apostles. We do know James was a significant leader of the first century church, particularly in Jerusalem. But more importantly, James and Jude were brothers of Jesus, as far as we know. And so therefore you have your connection to Jesus. You see, everyone involved in the writing of the New Testament either has a connection to the apostles or a connection to Christ himself. A direct connection, not an indirect connection. A very specific direct connection. That does leave, of course, one book that's unknown. And it's the first book on our list. Hebrews. That's the main reason Hebrews' canonicity was in question. Because no one knew exactly who the author was. Eventually, they came to assume it was Paul. And therefore, when we get to looking at some lists of the canon, they'll sometimes refer to it as 14 letters of Paul. In fact, you probably at some point in your life were told that Hebrews was a Pauline letter. And then later in life, someone told you, no, it's probably not. In fact, some of you may have heard that for the first time when, when Ben did his class on it a couple quarters ago. Hebrews was questioned early on simply because they didn't know who the author of it was. But those doubts were kind of put to rest when they started doing a little deduction. Hebrews actually makes reference to the fact that the, or the author of Hebrews makes reference to the fact that he knows Timothy, according to chapter 13, verse 23. So there, it places it at least in the age of the apostles. If the author is familiar with Timothy, at the very least, he's alive during a time period when apostles were alive. The, the language of Hebrews is so connected to, to Paul in so many ways that they came to assume it was Paul. It may not be, though. But Hebrews eventually was accepted despite its lack of known authorship in large part because it never disagrees with the rest of Scripture. That's another key to determining whether something can be accepted into the canon, 
is if it follows the, I think they call it the rule of order, that it's consistent with the rest of the teachings of Scripture. If it's consistent and does not contradict, that is another evidence for its acceptability into the canon. So Hebrews primarily was an issue because of its lack of a definitive author. The next book on that list is James. Now, one of the issues early on with it is that the, the author does not claim to be an apostle, not the apostle James. But the biggest issue with James was its teaching on justification by works. And early on, people struggled with, does this contradict Paul or does this corroborate Paul? And so the, uh, the issue for, for the acceptance of James was that it was perceived to contradict Paul's teaching on justification by faith in the book of Romans. But if you look closely enough at what James is talking about and what Paul is talking about, they're not contradicting each other. They're actually, they're actually supporting one another. They just have different emphases in what they're writing. I, and I, believe I wrote an article on that a few weeks back. But James was accepted eventually as well. Second Peter is probably the most, um, the, the book that had the hardest time being accepted. In fact, one author said, no other epistle in the New Testament occasioned greater doubts as to its genuineness than Second Peter. There are some stylistic differences between First and Second Peter that contributed to this. But one has to remember that First Peter is written with a scribe. Peter is speaking what he wants written, and somebody else is pinning it. And we also have to accept that there's a, a, a difference in the, the time, the topic, the recipients, the occasion for this, these two letters. And so there are going to be some, uh, some differences stylistically in that regard. But Second Peter is supported by early apostolic fathers, people who in the late 1st, early 2nd century reference the text of Second Peter. And so Second Peter, for that reason, and because it has um, some strong similarities with some of Peter's speeches in the book of Acts, came to be accepted as a letter from Peter. Second and third John were... Uh, were not readily accepted either. The author of those texts only identifies himself as the elder. Now, John the Apostle does identify himself as the elder, so there is that connection, but he did not specify his name in, the, in 2 John 1, verse 1, for instance. And because of that lack of definitive authorship, it was withheld acceptance for a time. But by the time of... Uh, uh, the end of the second century, it was accepted in the first canonical list that we'll look at in a moment. Jude's authenticity centered primarily around its references to some Old Testament pseudepigraphal books. If you look at verse 14 and 15 of Jude, there's uh, a reference from the book of Enoch, which is not a part of our Old Testament. And there is a possible allusion at the very least, to another, another text that's not part of the Old Testament known as the Assumption of Moses, and that appears in verse 9 of Jude. So the issue for Jude was that he quoted from texts that weren't biblical. 
Is there anyone else in Scripture that quoted from a text that was not biblical? Yes. His name is Paul. You go to Acts chapter 17, and Paul quotes from some poets that are not inspired Christians. And so once that kind of came to the realization of people that you don't have to specifically quote from a biblical text to be biblical, that as long as you're not quoting something erroneous or ascribing to a non-biblical text some um, authority, they then accepted Jude. Revelation is interesting. If we were to pick one book of the New Testament that we think doesn't fit the rest, we would probably pick Revelation. But what's so very interesting is that in the second century, Revelation was readily accepted. No one had a problem with Revelation. It wasn't until the third and fourth century that people began taking issue with Revelation. You know why I believe they didn't have a problem with it at first in the second century? It's because they understood it. It's because it was written for them. And if you, as Brother Gene, I, I believe, pointed out when he uh, did uh, the study of Revelation chapter 1 a couple times this quarter, it's writing about things that must soon take place, things that related to them. They understood apocalyptic literature. We don't. They understood it better than we do. And so it was right off the bat, Revelation was not in question. It took a couple centuries for people to start to question it just because of its strangeness. But by the, by, uh, when we start looking at the canonical list, you'll start seeing how it became accepted. Now here's the thing. These are the seven books that dealt with some questions, but were eventually accepted into the canon. The fact that these books were once disputed by some in the church, that's not an indicator that they're present place in the canon is any less firm than the other books. The basic problem of acceptance for these books was one or two pieces of question, that, of, of something about it that caused a question, whether it was authorship or whether it was a reference in the book or whether it was a style difference. That's all it was. But they were accepted as canon and quoted early in the second century. So that is the Antilogomena. Now let's talk about the Apocrypha. Again, the Apocrypha, that sec this section refers to texts that are accepted by some. Apocrypha literally means hidden or secret writings, but it came to mean any writing of dubious or unknown authority. The texts in this category were held in high esteem by at least one church father, which resulted in what has been called a temporary and local canonicity. In other words, these texts were accepted by a limited group of Christians for a limited time, but never gained very wide or permanent recognition as part of the canon. Numbered among these books, numbered among this list, the Apocrypha would be these books. The Epistle of Barnabas, 1 Clement, 2 Clement, Shepherd of Hermas, the Didache, the Apocalypse of Peter, the Acts of Paul and Thelka. Now some of these you may have heard of, some of these you may not. You can find all of these, um, these texts referenced 
either by an early church father, like some of the guys we showed on the screen earlier, or even provided in some of the codexes, the unsealed codexes from the 3rd, 4th century, 5th even. So these, these books were esteemed for a while, and most all of them were written in the first half, uh, or in the late 1st century or the first half of the 2nd century. For instance, the epistle of Barnabas is found in Codex Sinaiticus. And it's mentioned in the table of contents of Codex Bizet. It's quoted as scripture by Clement of Alexandria and Origen. The epistle to the Corinthians, uh, which is known as 1 Clement. 1 Clement was publicly read at Corinth, according to one early church father. It was found in Codex Alexandrinus. And Eusebius informs us that this letter had been read to many churches. The uh, second Clement up there was, one, was uh, known and used in the second century. It appears in Codex Alexandrinus. It's at the end of the New Testament in Codex Alexandrinus, along with First Clement. But there's no evidence that it was ever considered canonical by everybody. Shepherd of Hermas was the most popular non-canonical book in the early church. It's found in Codex Sinaiticus. It's found in the table of contents of Codex Bizet, and it's even found in some uh, early Latin translations of the New Testament. It's quoted by Irenaeus in Origen. Eusebius tells us that it was read publicly in churches and used for uh, instruction in some classes. But the Muratorian fragment, which we're going to talk about in just a moment, indicates that the shepherd of Hermas should be read by everybody, but not read publicly in the church because it is not on the same level as the canon. Another, another document called the Didache, or another book called the Didache, that means the teaching of the Twelve. It was held in high regard in the early church. Clement of Alexandria quoted it. Athanasius said it was used for instruction. Eusebius listed it among rejected writings, though. The Apocalypse of Peter was widely circulated in the early church. It's mentioned in one of the canonical lists, the earliest canonical list that we have. It's in the Table of Contents for Codex Bizet. It's quoted by Clement of Alexandria. The Acts of Paul and Thecla is a story about an Iconian woman who supposedly was converted by Paul in Acts chapter 14. And it's found in the table of contents for the Codex Bizet. But none of these texts were universally accepted as canon. The fact that they are identified in a codex or quoted by an early church father shows that they were accepted by someone, that they were recognized by someone, but not by everyone. And so they fall in this category known as the Apocrypha, that are texts that are accepted by some, but not all. The final category we want to mention tonight is the Pseudepigrapha. This is the these are the texts that have been rejected by everyone, by all the early church fathers, by all the canons, and so on. Pseudepigrapha literally means false writings. It refers to the fact that these texts were considered heretical. 
These texts were rejected by all the church fathers in evidence, and they evidence an incurable curiosity to, to discover things that are not revealed in the canonical books. For example, several of the texts we'll talk about in a minute that fall under the pseudepigrapha, several want to investigate the childhood of Jesus. One of the most popular is called the Gospel of Thomas. You may have heard of the Gospel of Thomas. It tells of miracles Jesus performed as a child. It was immediately rejected because John makes it very clear in his Gospel, in John chapter 2, that when Jesus went to the wedding, uh, wedding in Cana, that's the first miracle he ever performed. And so for another Gospel to come along and say that there are miracles of Jesus prior to that is inconsistent with, with the canon of Scripture and therefore must be rejected. I want to read to you uh, one story from the Gospel of Thomas about the childhood of Jesus. Of course, this is a translation into English, but this is how fanciful these stories are. Somewhat later, he was referring to Jesus. Jesus was going through the village, and a child ran up and banged into his shoulder. Jesus was aggravated and said to him, You will go no further on your way. And right away, the child fell down and died. Yeah, that's consistent with the canon. There's another story about how he formed uh, 12 birds out of clay, and then they came to life and flew away. A story about how a kid fell off of a roof playing. Jesus and another boy were playing on the roof of a house. The boy fell off. Jesus jumped off the roof, went down there, and brought the boy back to life. It's crazy stories like that. Jesus gets mad as a child because somebody... He made a pool of water. He, he made a little dam in the ground and made a little pool of water that he was playing with and somebody came and knocked, knocked the dam away and the water went away and he got mad at the kid. It's stories like that. That's the Gospel of Thomas. There's also the Gospel of Judas. This one was uh, discovered not many years ago and became very popular in, uh, in the late 90s, early 2000s with a group known as the G Jesus Seminar. The Gospel of Judas declares that Judas was Jesus' favorite disciple. And that Jesus revealed some special information to Judas. That Jesus specifically asks Judas to betray him. That Jesus is working in conjunction with Judas to bring about his death for mankind. That Judas... Judas, in the Gospel of Judas, is depicted as a hero. Those are the kind of texts that fall under the pseudepigrapha. They are very interested in the parts of Scripture that we don't have information about. There's one, uh, one of them is called the Gospel of the Nativity of Mary. It promotes the worship of Mary. That Mary is, in fact, sinless just like Jesus. Because in order for Jesus to be sinless, she must have been as well. And so among these documents, just to name a few, which at one point there was counted nearly 300 different pseudepigrapha, but among the more popular is the Gospel of Thomas that alleges miracles of the childhood of Jesus, the Gospel of Judas, which presents Judas as Jesus' most trusted disciple and a hero, the Gospel of the Nativity of Mary, the Acts of Peter, which is where we get the legend that Peter was crucified upside down. Then there's the Acts of Thomas that uh, presents the mission and martyrdom of Thomas in India. 
the epistle to the Laodiceans is another one, and it's a forgery based on a statement made in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 16 where, where Paul indicates that he wrote a letter to Laodicea. So someone decided to write one for him. And then there's the second apocalypse of James that describes the trial and martyrdom of James, Jesus' brother, and includes some uh, apocalyptic information. Now, the reason every book that is identified as pseudepigrapha is um, rejected comes down to either it is inconsistent with the rest of canon, it teaches something that does not fit with the doctrines and theology of the church, uh, it has a false claim to authorship, uh, it shows evidence of being written in the second, third, fourth century, but claims to be written by some significant or insignificant figure in the New Testament, uh, whether Mary Magdalene or, or Peter or Thomas or somebody like that. And uh, it also has very clear false teachings. You have to remember you have a lot of false teachings surface in the second century, like Montanism and like um, Marcion. You have Gnosticism, Docetism. You have all these isms going on with these false teachings. And once you read one of these books, you start to realize, oh, they're trying to promote that ideology. And it becomes easy to spot the pseudepigrapha. So there's always an issue that leads to their rejection. That is the fourth category of texts when it relates to canon issues. Now let's turn our attention to some lists. Our four classifications of the text, and you're going to see these in various forms take shape and be mentioned in um, the list that we're going to talk about now. The earliest canonical list that is in our possession today is called the Muratorian Fragment. It's a surviving list of New Testament books dated to around 170 A.D. I will have the dates of these lists hi highlighted just so you can see how it develops. Remember, New Testament is written by the end of the first century, so by 100 A.D. all the books in the New Testament are written. You jump into the second century, you have the er in the first half of the second century, so from 100 to 150, you have a lot of the next generation of Christians quoting New Testament texts. And then from about 150 to 200, you're really dealing with the uh, heretical movements of Montanus and Marcion. And now you're starting to have canonical lists develop at the end of the second century. The first one being the Muratorian Fragment. The Muratorian Fragment accepted these books as canon. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Two epistles of John. They are not identified as First and Second John. It's just two epistles of John. Jude, Revelation, and the Book of Wisdom. Now, the Book of Wisdom is actually part of the Old Testament pseudepigrapha. If you ever come across a... I think it's identified with the Catholic Church as part of their Deuterocanon. But if you ever look up Old Testament pseudepigrapha, that's where the Book of Wisdom is. For whatever reason, the Muratorian Fragment decided to include it. Uh, it is actually written before the first century. It's late, uh, late B.C. time period. Uh, so it, it has no bearing on us, really, but I had to admit that it's included in there. Now, you'll notice I put the word inferred by Matthew and Mark. That's because a portion of the fragment is missing, and it identifies the first book it starts with is Luke, but it identifies Luke as the third gospel. So therefore, we infer that it included Matthew and Mark prior to that, but we do. it's not visibly there because the fragment is torn at that point. Um, 
it identifies the apocalypse of Peter as a disputed book, as a, a, a book that some accept and some don't. And then it completely rejects Shepherd of Hermas, an epistle to the Laodiceans by Paul, an epistle to the Alexandrians by Paul, and a new book of Psalms. It does not mention, so I use the word omitted, it does not mention either as accepting, rejecting, or disputing Hebrews, James, 1st and 2nd Peter, and a third epistle of John. This is the oldest canon, oldest canonical list that we know of. From there, we then come to a guy named Origen, who lived from 185 A.D. to 254 A.D. He compiled a list. We do not know what year he compiled his list because it's, his, his original document is lost to us, but it's quoted in the works of Eusebius, who we'll talk about in just a moment. But Origen's list accepted Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, an unspecified number of Paul's epistles. He just refers to them as Paul's epistles. It also accepts Hebrews, 1 Peter, 1 John, and Revelation. It disputes 2 Peter, 2 John, 3 John. And it omits, does not mention James or Jude. You'll start to see a pattern emerge over time. Eusebius then has his own list. And Eusebius is pretty significant when it comes to the listing of canon. He, you can see he lived from about 263 to 339 AD. That's a little later. That's your end of your 3rd century and early 4th century. But Eusebius is going to become a major contributor to the uh, uh, development of the, the uh, or to the transmission of the text because Eusebius is going to be ordered by Constantine to produce 50 uh, Bibles for use in the kingdom. And we'll get to that in a moment. But Eusebius uh, developed his own canonical list. And he divided it into these three groups. This is where we actually kind of start getting our terminology for the groups we've already talked about. But he has those that are universally acknowledged, those that are disputed, and those that are rejected. His universally accepted group is Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, 14 letters of Paul, which is likely an indication that he's including Hebrews. He also accepts 1 Peter, 1 John, and Revelation. He says James, Jude, 2 Peter, 2 and 3 John are disputed. He rejected several texts, Acts of Paul, Shepherd of Hermas, Apocalypse of Peter, Epistle of Barnabas, Teachings of the Apostles, a Gospel according to Hebrews, uh, and Gospels associated with Peter, Thomas, and Matthias, as well as Acts uh, of Andrew, John, and other Apostles. So by the time we get to Eusebius, we're getting a, more, we're getting a lot more rejections. Now we're going to turn our attention to two codexes. You may remember from weeks ago that we talked about uh, the importance of some of the early uh, codices, collections of, of the New Testament on parchment in a, a, in a book form. Uh, the two earliest are Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus. Codex Sinaiticus dates to around 330 to 360 AD. Now here's what's interesting. I mentioned a moment ago Eusebius was assigned the task by Emperor Constantine to produce 50 Bibles, Old and New Testament. And this uh, task was given to Eusebius around 332 A.D. Now there are many that believe that Codex Vaticanus and Codex Sinaiticus are copies, or, or, or copies of these Bibles that Eusebius was assigned to produce. We don't know that for sure. It's just something people believe. I placed them in this point because we just talked about Eusebius's canon. Now let's look at what Codex Sinaiticus actually includes 
in the text of its New Testament. It includes the four Gospels, 14 epistles of Paul, with Hebrews situated immediately after 2 Thessalonians and before 1 Timothy. That's going to be important to note in just a moment. It also has the book of Acts, the seven Catholic epistles, that means the seven universal epistles. That's a reference to um, James and First and Second Peter, First and Second and Third John and Jude. And then it also has Revelation. Notice this. It actually has the epistle of Barnabas and the shepherd of Hermas in it as well. This is one of the major codexes that is used for biblical Greek translation. The other major one that's key is Codex Vaticanus. And Codex Vaticanus includes the four Gospels, the Book of Acts, the seven Catholic epistles. Again, that's James, Jude, 1st and 2nd, 3rd John, 1st and 2nd Peter. It also has the Pauline epistles all the way to 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. But then we have a problem. Once again, Hebrews follows 2nd Thessalonians, just like Codex Sinaiticus but we only have through chapter 9 of Hebrews in Codex Vaticanus. Everything after that is missing. So we don't know if Codex Vaticanus included 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, Philemon. We don't know if those would have been there, even Revelation, I should throw that one in there as well, because if it's following the same order as Codex Sinaiticus, all of those books would have come after Hebrews. And so it's quite possible that Codex Vaticanus is an exact replica of the books that appear in Codex Sinaiticus. We just don't know because we're missing those documents. But anyway, so these two codexes that appear in the, that come from the early to mid 300s include those books that have been mentioned. After that, we can then look at a guy named Cyril of Jerusalem. He produced a list in 350 AD that accepted the four Gospels, the Acts of the Twelve Apostles, the seven Catholic epistles of James, Peter, John, and Jude, and then 14 epistles of Paul, which obviously means that Hebrews was included, included in there. He rejected a gospel according to Thomas, and he omitted, meaning he did not reference Revelation. That's 350 A.D. After him, we have a guy named Athanasius, 367 A.D. He published a canonical list that included the Gospels, the four Gospels, Acts, the seven Catholic epistles, the Pauline epistles, with Hebrews inserted between 2 Thessalonians and 1 Timothy, just like Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus. And he ended with the Apocalypse of John, also known as Revelation. In other words, Athanasius, when we get to his list in 367 AD, it has the exact books that appear in your New Testament right now. Codex Sinaiticus had all the books that appear in your New Testament and a couple more. Codex Vaticanus, we're not sure. It may have had the exact same ones we have in our New Testament plus a couple more. We don't know just because we're missing a portion. But by the time we get to 367 AD, it's a firm list of 27 books. And so within 200 years or so of the writing of the New Testament, your canon has finally firmed up to 27 books. Now, you and I might sit here at this stage in our life and think, man, that took a long time. But I want you to think, it took 
50 years or so for the whole New Testament to be written. And in an age where you don't have computers, you don't have email, you don't have postal mail, you don't have fax machines, you don't have any technology to help get that, get that content moved. It's hand-carried, hand-written, hand-copied texts that are going around an empire. You have to think where some of these books were written to uh, Rome, some were, were written to um, uh, areas of Turkey, some were written specifically to people in Judea. You have a wide range of locations that these texts are going to initially and originating from initially. And then they have to be accepted by, or received, I should say, received by churches and individuals. And then those churches and individuals have to make copies and circulate them to other churches. So 50 years of writing, and then 200 or so years later, you finally have them saying, these are the books. These are the 27. We're sticking with this. It took that long to circulate the text. It took that long for the issues related to the text uh, to be dealt with. That's not a bad amount of time to get to a firm list. So by 367, you start having people with a very firm list of 27 books related to the New Testament. And here's the thing for us to take away, in my opinion. We have a God who orchestrated the inspiration of the text of the New Testament. I believe that same God orchestrated the collection of the New Testament. I believe if I'm going to have faith in the inspiration of the New Testament, I must also have faith in the collection of the New Testament. That my God would ensure and bring to completion the writing, the collecting, and the passing on of his inspired word. And so tonight, as we conclude our examination of the canon of the New Testament, what we're looking at is this time period it took for, for the, uh, uh, the messages of the New Testament to be passed around and then to be circulated and then to be collected. And 200 years or 250 years, whatever it might be, really doesn't seem like that long of a time in the grand scheme of things, considering the circumstances and the lack of technology that they had. I hope, as has been the case this entire quarter, I hope that our study of this has given you confidence in God's Word as we've looked at, at the manuscripts, as we've looked at the, uh, uh, the textual variants, as we've looked at the development of the canon. Next week, we're going to start looking at the translation how we went from Greek manuscripts to English books. And if we have time in our last week of the quarter, I'll do some uh, talking about the Old Testament, Dead Sea Scrolls, things like that. Uh, but next week we'll transition to the, the uh, uh, English translations. If you would, let's bow for a word of prayer as we close out our time tonight. Heavenly Father, we're grateful that we're able to assemble, uh, grateful that we're able to study uh, this, this subject matter. May you embolden our faith, may you give us confidence in your word, and may we never neglect its use. We love you, Lord, and it's through your son's name we pray. Amen.